stuff in it. Matthew chapter 12, and we're in uh, verses 43 to 45. We're going to be talking about uh, the relationship between uh, this issue of demonic spirits and uh, Christians and non-believers, which is really what this particular part is about. And I want to begin uh, by talking about an illustration from the secular world because uh, I think that these things are becoming more full-blown and they're getting out in, the, out in the open anymore. We're seeing this stuff on TV and in the news and uh, the talk about the demonic and all those things as we see the days drawing near uh, when the Lord will come and get us. So I'm reading to you uh, from something by, that was adapted by Maria Chang, and it's in uh, her article, uh, Evil to Him Who Thinks Evil. And here's what it says. I think the Joker killed Heath Ledger. Now we're going to be talking about a film from Hollywood, uh, Batman. And uh, the Joker was this guy named uh, Heath Ledger who played that. So writes the attorney Jay Gaskell in his review of The Dark Knight, that's the name of the film, about the superhero Batman. On January 22, 2008, six months before the movie's opening, Heath Ledger, who played the villainous Joker, was found unconscious in his Manhattan apartment. The medical examiner reported that the 28-year-old had died from an accidental overdose of a lethal brew of prescription drugs. Reviewers lauded Ledger as an electrifying performer. Ledger's character is more of a sociopathic master criminal. Uh, reviewers used the language of the supernatural, calling him demonic and diabolical, a hound fresh out of hell, a vivid, compelling picture of evil, like Satan. Uh, Michael Caine, who plays Batman's butler, Alfred, said he found Ledger's performance so terrifying and disturbing that sometimes he forgot his lines. Reportedly, the Joker had also taken, I'm sorry, be, reportedly the Joker's, Joker, oh boy, the Joker role had taken a decided toll on the actor's health. For weeks he was unable to sleep, averaging only two hours a night. He told a New York Times reporter in November of 2007 that even after taking two sleeping pills, he said, I couldn't stop thinking, my body was exhausted, my mind was still going. He also told a reporter that the only way I can act is to climb into the skin of that person I am playing. For the dark night, he spent months alone in a hotel room to work on his character and his voice, perfecting an unhinging, uh, an unhinging cackle that sends shivers up the audience spines. But by immersing himself in the role as the Joker, Ledger, they say, might have gazed too deeply into the abyss. So uh, the lady that wrote this article goes on to say, <clears throat> whoever fights monsters, I'm sorry, this is actually a quote of somebody else, but whoever fights monsters should see to it that, they, that the, in the process they don't become a monster themselves. And when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. This famous but unclear quote is from the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, no friend of Christianity, has at least one interpretation, and he says this, if a person gazes too long at evil, it will become a part of him. And then the author asks, did Ledger fall prey to this? Did he look too long into evil, and then it became a part of him? We say the same thing in Christian circles. We say, you know, you shouldn't talk about the devil. You shouldn't talk about demons. And if you spend too much time on them, then those devils and those demons are going to become too important to you. And the next thing you know, you're trapped. 
I don't believe that at all. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that we deny the presence of enemies, we deny the presence of the demonic, and we act like it's not a part of people's lives, and we act like it isn't really a problem, when in fact it is. Christians like to say, you shouldn't think very long about the devil. Uh, it's like somehow that will, in and of itself, trap you into the gri grip of or the grasp of demons. I say we don't spend nearly enough time giving them their due diligence in both study and in fighting uh, them uh, when they rear their ugly little demonic heads. Now, in our text this morning, we need to put together our context, which is always, the, uh, of course, the best thing to do. And what I want to remind you of is that it wasn't long ago uh, that the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, said in verse 24 of chapter 12, they said, Jesus casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul, which is Satan. And so we're going off of that, and Jesus said, look, if I do that, then Satan's fighting his own kingdom, and he can't stand. I'm not doing that. I would do it by the power of God. Then he talked to them about what the unpardonable sin was, which is basically denying the Holy Spirit of God. And if you deny the Spirit of God, then you deny uh, the salvation because you have to have uh, his help in doing that. And so he also challenged them, look, uh, make up your mind. Either say what I'm doing is good or say what I'm doing is bad. Just make up your mind. And so they've had a lot of trouble with that. And now we're in verse 43. And so I want you to see that there's a connection here, okay, between what he's been saying about uh, the Pharisees and the demonic. And this is really a story about the life of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as many others in the world and down through time. But here's what Jesus says, verse 43. Now, when an unclean spirit, and you know, demons go by all kinds of names, evil spirit, unclean spirit, apparitions, ghosts, you name it. We've got all kinds of names for them. This is an, a fallen angel, an angel that did not follow God when they had a choice to follow God or not follow God, and so they've developed many different names, but these are guys that, that are angels that used to be good angels. They had a choice to go with Satan. They chose to go to Satan. The Bible says a third of the angels chose to go with Satan, and they become demons, unclean spirits, and all these other things, and two-thirds stayed with God and stayed faithful to God. Those are the good angels, the elect angels. Jesus is now talking about the angels that departed from him and followed Satan, and they are, uh, among other things, unclean spirits. Now, when the unclean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to run out of time. I'm just going to slow down a little. If we don't get done, we'll stay till 1230, okay? <laughs> Not a lot of uh, agreement on that. Okay, all right, here we go. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to, and I underline this in my Bible, the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits. He's talking about seven other demons, more wicked than itself. In other words, the one that left and came back. And they go in, they go into the man that this demon first left, and they live there. They make their abode there. They dwell within the flesh of this man. And Jesus says, and the last state of the man, because now he has eight demons instead of just one, the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So that clues us into the fact that Jesus is really targeting here 
the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel. And if you look at a religious leader of Israel, uh, they, they look very religious. They've got their robes on. They've got their prayer tassels on. Uh, they walk around looking very religious and holy. You know, sometimes they hold their hands like this and all that stuff. And, and they just look religious on the outside. Jesus later is going to say, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. Inside, you, you're full of dead men's bones because there's no reality of spiritual life in them. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through here. So in verse 4, and I want you to understand there's lots of things that could be going on with this text and a lot of things that were not told. And so I'm going to make a stab at trying to make it uh, you know, palatable to us in terms of what really happens here. In verse 43, we're going to learn this. An exercise spirit. Now, you need to understand that exercised means to take a spirit, deal with it, and send it out of somebody's life. That's an exorcism. But it can be any time a spirit leaves a human's body. That, that can be an exorcism. There are people uh, in, in various organizations and in the Catholic Church that are nothing but exorcists, and that's what their ministry is. And they go out to try to cast demons out of people. So in this verse, we learn that for some reason, we'll talk about it, an exercised spirit leaves into arid places seeking rest but does not find it. All I did was go through and restate what, what the verse says, right? Now let's talk about it. In order to make sense out of all this, one first must, uh, uh, before anything else, one first must believe that demons and Satan exist and they are very real and wicked angelic beings. I know all kinds of Christians who don't believe in demons. If they do, they think, well, they're not able to do anything anymore because this is the New Testament, or they just don't believe them at all. I had a Christian tell me one time, I don't really believe in demons. And I said, well, that's interesting because according to the text, Jesus believed in them. <laughs> if Jesus believes they're real, why wouldn't we believe they're real? That's the whole issue. And so there are those who are in some strange places that believe in demons and those in those same places that do not believe in demons. And some of those places are churches where some people do believe and some people don't believe. And then there's places like in the secular society where some people believe in them and some people don't. I've actually found more unbelievers that are willing to believe in, un in this whole thing than believers because we've been fed a, a lie. And that lie is that the demons, if you're a Christian, can't have anything to do with your flesh can't build a base of operation in you, and that simply is not true. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. So I introduced you to a psychiatrist, and uh, he does not claim to be a Christian by any sense of the imagination, uh, but uh, he is obviously well-educated. And so I wanted to use this illustration from him. Obviously, it's real, uh, but just to give you just a little hint of what he's doing. <coughs> The Washington Post uh, ran a controversial op-ed piece titled, and here's the title, As a Psychiatrist, I Diagnose Mental Illness. Also, I Help Spot Demonic Possession. Now, that's the end of this. So there are, there are uh, religious people and Christian people that go to this guy and say, I'm dealing with this person in my church. Uh, I need to know, is this just a, a, a mental problem or is this a demonic problem? My first question is going to be is, why do religious people need to go to a secular person to tell whether there's a demon there or not? Why, why is this happening? So I have a question about that. Uh, the subtitle reads this, How a Scientist Learned to Work with Exorcists. The author, Richard Gallagher, is a board-certified psychiatrist and professor of clinical psychiatry at New York's Medical College. Dr. Gallagher writes this, for the past two and a half decades and over several hundred consultations, 
I have helped clergy from multiple denominations and faith to filter episodes of mental illness which represent the overwhelming majority of the cases from literally the devil's work. I'm going to take issue with this guy, and I'm not nearly, not, I'm not even close to being educated like him, but it's not about education. <laughs> it's about the reality of the spirit world. He's going to go three times in here, and he's going to talk about how this is extremely rare, very rare that would happen to a person. I, I can't disagree more. It is way more prominent than people give, uh, even secular people give it credit for. So I think he's misdiagnosing a lot of stuff. But the point is, he's an unbeliever, but he believes in the demonic. Uh, my personal belief and my experience is, if you take 100 schizophrenics, 80 of them belong in my office, and 20 really belong with a psychiatrist. There really is a need for that, but not so much. Most of the time, it's a demon talking through a person had someone in my own family have that problem, and that we dealt with it spiritually, and it went away instantly. Anyway, he goes on to say, it is an unlikely role for an academic physician, but I don't see these two aspects of my career in conflict. The same habits that shape what I do as a professor and psychiatrist, open-mindedness, respect for evidence, and compassion for suffering people, led me uh, to aid in the work of discerning attacks by what I believe are evil spirits and just as critically differentiating these extremely rare uh, events, which is hard for me to read, it's not rare, uh, from medical conditions. It is possible to be a sophisticated psychiatrist and believe in evil spirits, that they are real, however seldom, assailing humans. Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no, that's not possible, because of their frequent contact with patients who are deluded about demons. In other words, people come in and complain about the demonic, but they say, well, that's a delusion. That's not really an issue in these other people's minds. Their general skepticism of the supernatural and their commitment to employ only standard peer-reviewed treatments that do not potentially mislead, which is a definite risk, uh, or harm the vulnerable patients. So they don't want to harm them, but they're not curing them either. But careful observation of the evidence, he says, in his, in his practice, presents to me in my career uh, that has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. So far, the article has generated nearly 3,000 comments, and this is an old article, 3,000 comments, mostly from people whose worldview does not permit the reality of demon possession or even the existence of demons. If we were to look in the new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, uh, they would take these people that think they have a demon, and what they would do is they would, uh, they would diagnose it either as a neurotic uh, possession trance disorder or a dissociative identity dis disorder, which used to be called a multiple personality disorder. So anyway, they would define it and then go from there. Okay. What really matters is what you believe. That, that's what really matters. I hear people say, we all have our demons. And at times they don't know who they're talking to because I wonder what that means and what they mean by that. What do you mean we all have our demons? Do you, do you think they're real? They usually don't think that they're real. They just think we all have bad things. Uh, I know what I think that means. And so sometimes if I have a chance, I question them. Jesus tells uh, the religious leaders about what demons do. They should already know that. But the Pharisees and Sadducees have attacked him, and so he's trying to tell them some things about this because they're the ones with this problem. That's what he's saying. So it is in the context of two serious problems. 
And I'm talking about the people Jesus is talking to. They have decided that Jesus casts out demons by the power of the demonic Lord Satan. See, these guys believe that demons are real. That's not the issue. They have their own exorcists in Judaism. I still have never figured out how they did that, but uh, uh, they had them. The second thing is they didn't, they, they didn't ask for a sign out of a desire for faith in Jesus. They're hypocrites. They asked for a sign about the reality of Jesus being a Messiah or the Messiah, challenging Jesus to convince them, go ahead and try to prove to us who you are. And we know Jesus doesn't care for that kind of attitude. Uh, their hearts are closed. They're like rocks. They are pious, religious unbelievers. Did you know you can be religious and not a believer? Religion is man reaching to God. That never works. True religion is God reaching to man. And that always works. In verse 43, Jesus tells them a real life story of a, I'm going to say, demonized man and his demon. The demon was apparently exercised from an unnamed person. Perhaps, that's a guess, he had to leave somehow. But it doesn't say that he was exercised by a person. It just says, as you read the verse, an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through water, it's placed. So for whatever reason, and it may not be a specific person, it just happens whenever a demon leaves a person, we would call it an exorcism, but there's times when demons leave a person because they want to. And they're looking for something else in somebody else. Uh, nobody made them leave, but sometimes they just up and pack up and leave. Sometimes they're cast out. It really doesn't uh, say, and so it's not going to matter what needs to be said here, is that there was a man who had a demon and a demonic presence in him, and now it leaves. It, it just leaves the man. In other words, uh, disembodies from him. And this is an unnamed person. So he had to leave for some reason, either because he wanted to, he made a decision, or because somebody dealt with him and he had to leave uh, for, for a little while. So the demon roams around, it says, in arid places, meaning that he's not embodied. They see the physical body of a person as something that is water, watery, and it is. Our bodies are uh, quite a bit percentage of water. And so that's called uh, not an arid place, but a wet place. And so he's in arid places, meaning he's out there without a body. Now, this demon wants to be in a body. There's other demons that could care less about being in a body. They're territorial demons. They take control over certain places. Could be your home, your farm, uh, your car, whatever, and uh, they need to be taken care of too, but that's different. He is seeking to find a body uh, he can do his work in to uh, further the damage that is being done. Not all demons want to be embodied, but this one does. He was inside a man, and now he goes outside the man. They literally take up a base of operation inside human bodies. That can happen also with Christians who are living in sin. And he has been exercised somehow. Now, what I just said is this. Our sinful bodies are not fit for the kingdom of God. We're going to get new ones. These are bodies of death. And they're still bodies of sin. And if we go out and sin and continue in a sin, an enemy can build a base of operation in our flesh. Not, hear me, not your spirit. A Christian can't be possessed, can't be owned by a demon, but they can certainly give ground to a demon and be demonized. This whole thing in this is not really about Christians, though, but that's true. It can happen to a Christian, but this is about unbelievers in this particular text. But I want to make that clear. Uh, they literally take up a base of operation in the human body, and somehow he is left, and he's looking for rest. He wants to find a body where he can settle down in. And this simply means 
to stop an activity. Rest means stop an activity one is engaged in. In other words, he wants to stop searching for a place to live, and he wants to find a place where he can live. He wants a house. He wants a person to indwell and to be able uh, to rest there and stop looking. This is what Dr. Gallagher says he sees and sees what's happening. Sometimes there's, a, there's, a, there's an evil spirit inside this person. He does not find a person suitable for his desires. The demon doesn't. And the demons uh, in, in life tend to specialize in certain types of evil. So we have some demons that their, their, uh, their mode of operation is to be a destroyer. Some are adulter push adultery, some push lying, some are haters, uh, some are sexual spirits, and some are just uh, wicked spirits that do wicked and nasty things. But they're all demons. So we've got a demon on the loose looking for a new home to live in, which is a person. Sin in a person's life opens the door, especially for a Christian, for an enemy to come and take some ground in that person's life or build a base of operation. In verse 44... Then the demon says, it says, I will return, notice, to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it is unoccupied, swept, and put in order. So the demon returns to the house, the man he left, to find it's clean, but as yet unoccupied by any spirit, either a demonic spirit or the spirit of God. It's unoccupied. So he's been looking for a house, scratching his head, doesn't like what he finds. He said, I'm going to go back to my house. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and thereby give a place or a room to the devil. Understand that that was written to Christians. And so we need to be, uh, we need to be aware of these things and deal with them. So uh, in verse 44, the demon reasons with itself about the house that he left in the first place. And he said, I'm going to go back to my house. He's laid a claim on it. It's his. And uh, he was either kicked out or he left for some reason. And what makes him think that he can go back there? Well, uh, he's going back and he checks on the condition of the house. Notice that he refers to the man as his house. Now we're going to take a, yeah, boy, oh boy, I should have talked faster. Okay. We're going to take a trip to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. At the very beginning of the uh, history of mankind, Cain and Abel get into it. Uh, God accepts an offering uh, from one of them, and that's Abel. And then Cain gets angry in verse 6 because he senses that Abel had a spiritual advantage over him with God. And it's not that way at all. It's just that Abel had a good heart and Cain had a bad heart. And he became very angry, and his countenance fell. You could tell he was angry by looking at his face. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And then God gives him this advice. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. There's other ancient Near Eastern languages where that word for sin, crouching, that word crouching, is, uh, is a, a word in the Akkadian language that means a demon. And so the picture we're getting here is that you need to do well, Cain, and don't do what you're planning. God already knew he was going to try to go out and kill Abel, and he does. And he's, he's trying to stop him. If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. You'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, there is a demon waiting to take advantage of you as soon as you do what you're going to do. And so that's a warning. And so we uh, want to make sure we keep short accounts with God, and we don't allow those things to happen. 
Uh, I'm going to go on here because the rest of those verses are in your bulletin, and you can read those and see what they say about that issue. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to keep going. Um, notice that he referred to it as my house. And I, I did the Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. The enemy, the demon, returned to assess the house condition. And this is what he finds. Foremost of all, it's not occupied. There's no other spirit there in the man. He notices that the house is broom swept. Uh, someone took care of it to clean it. Uh, they obeyed ritual. That's what the Pharisees do. They are not godly people. They're opposing the Son of God. They are now making themselves enemies of God. But they look great on the outside. They look very religious, and that still happens today. People look religious. They sing our songs. They pray our prayers. They go to our worship services. But there's, there's evil inside, not, not a real relationship with Jesus. The house is clean. There's no clutter of a spiritual nature, no big sin issue going on, let's say. The house is also neat. That is, it's fixed up. Uh, put in order. Perhaps the man was starting to take Torah seriously and synagogue attendance seriously. He has done some work of living a cleaner life and a more sinless life. It all looks pretty good to the demon. It is nice enough to be able to invite some friends to come back with him. Ouch, now we're in real trouble. He had one demon to deal with. Now he's got eight, and they all came in. Uh, they used to have an argument in antiquity about how many demons could dance on the head of a pin. That was Luther, Martin Luther was in on that. Uh, you know, they don't take up space if they don't want to. Uh, and so, you know, we had one man in the Bible. Jesus cast out a demon out of him. Legion, 6,000. It's not an issue. It happens. And this guy's got eight now. So uh, it all looks pretty good to the demon. And he invites some of his friends. And the issue for him is the fact that the house is not occupied and it's clean. This is a picture of the Pharisees. Pompous, religious hypocrites who don't know the truth and they don't know God. They are clean, they look that way, but they're missing the most important part. Freedom from demonization is not enough to get you into heaven. It's a problem, but it's not enough to get you into heaven. You have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to know him as your Savior. So once the house is clean, it is the responsibility of the person to respond in faith to the power of God. Here, they need to be responding to Jesus, and they refuse. So what was missing in the man of the, uh, that was, had the uh, occupancy of the, of the Spirit of God, uh, didn't have the occupancy of the Spirit of God, that's what was missing, had the occupancy of enemies, he needs to know Christ. And then it wouldn't be unoccupied. Now, he can still have trouble in his flesh, but it wouldn't be unoccupied. God is not running this man's life. Hard obedience is not there. It's lacking, and there's no relationship, no true relationship with God. And the leadership of Israel will soon bring grave consequences to their nation by leading them in unbelief. And then verse 45. Then this demon goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there, and the state of the man becomes worse than the first. And here's the key to the, to the text. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Because they're not going to get their house cleaned up. They're not going to invite Jesus in. And it's going to be worse for them because of their failure. So because of not responding in faith to God, the demon is free to go back uh, with seven others, and uh, they are morally filthy demons. 
We cannot have the redemption of the soul or the transformation of our lives without a personal relationship to God. We can't fight the demonic without his presence. Now there are eight demons in a nice clean apartment, if you will, and they're like renters from Gehenna, and it won't stay that way long. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Satan comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. That's it. That's his M.O. That's what he does. He doesn't do much else. Jesus came that you might have life. Satan came to take your life. We must take care of our sin before we can remove an enemy if we're Christians. We must take care of our relationship with Jesus so we can become Christians, so we can take care of that. Stephen uh, Siemens wrote this, as, a significant, as significant as demonic influence may be, it is never the primary issue in someone's life. I couldn't tell that to the African pastors when Noel and I went over there to talk about dealing with the demonic enough. They blamed everything on a demon. They would say, well, a demon did that. I said, no, you did it. And I kept making the statement, the demons are not our problem. Our sin is the problem. Over here, where pastors dismiss that and say there are no demons that can attack Christians, I say, look, uh, they say, you see, you see a demon under every bush. I said, that's a lie. Over here, I say, I see 40 demons under every bush. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. It's happening. Do something about it. And so over there, it was, it was way too far the other way, so I tried to get him to say, it's not the demon's problem. You're the, you're the sinner. And this guy says something that's very significant. As significant as demonic influence may be, it is never the primary issue in someone's life. It may be a deadly, destructive consequence or fruit, but it is not the root problem. Charles Kraft has a helpful analogy. He says, demons are like rats that are attracted to garbage. The problem is the garbage, and that's what I was trying to say in Africa, consisting of things like our persistent sinful behaviors, our reactions to our emotional wounds, and our sinful generational influences and patterns. These are the issues for which we are responsible. When we deal with them, then we can get rid of the garbage. Then the rats don't have anything to feed on, and they'll go somewhere else. The rats are sin. And Christians can still sin, and unbelievers sin all the time and don't have God. The key words come next. This is the way it will be with this generation, evil generation. They think that they have a relationship to God when all they have is a tidy, neat, religious-looking house. They, they play house with God. God's not there. An en enemy can build a base of operation in a believer through his sin, but this is about religious unbelievers. They live a pretty good life, maybe a morally clean life, and they're nice to other people. They think they're going to get into heaven for that, but they don't have the spirit of the living God dwelling in them. Their house is not occupied. It is open to occupancy. If you have an event where you get rid of an enemy, but you don't replace the occupancy with Jesus, it's only a matter of time when things will be worse if you're an unbeliever. And if that describes you, then you need Jesus today. And then you need to live a life with short accounts with God. Because the battle doesn't end it just means they won't have any possession of you. Demonization, yes. Possession, no. But if you need to come to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sins, then the issue is this. All you have to do is say to Jesus, you can say in your head right now, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want to ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for me. 
And today I want you to come into my life and be my Savior and my God. And then just say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Salvation is without cost. He already paid for it all. Coming to know Jesus as your Savior is as simply as humbling yourself, admitting you're a sinner, and asking him if he would forgive your sins, and he'll do it. And he'll save you. Then you have everything you need to fight the enemy because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But you still have to battle. But they can't do what they could do to an unbeliever, to you. Well, I rushed. I slowed down, rushed again. I'm just going to very, very uh, gently take my time on my applications. How about that? Number one. If you don't clean up your life with the gift of Jesus that he offers you, all right, salvation, if you don't clean up your life with the gift Jesus offers you, your lot in life will only get worse. If you deny Jesus after knowing the truth, it will only get worse for you. That's what it says in the Bible. I didn't make that up. I'm just trying to share it with you so you make a decision for Christ. And for those of us who are believers to make that decision that I'm going to live for him, keep short accounts with God, don't let sin build up, and if I do, I'm going to deal with it. Secondly, if you do accept his gracious salvation, you must keep short accounts with him and stay free of enemy strongholds. And finally this, a simply tidy spiritual life is no spiritual life at all. In order to gain spiritual life, you must repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your Savior. And he will do it graciously, lovingly, and he's been waiting for you, maybe. If you have made that decision, let me know. I want to give you a book to help you get grounded in your faith and get grounded in what salvation really is and uh, let you start your growth there, all right? Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that Jesus brought this up. He brought it up to a bunch of unbelieving religious leaders who thought they were all clean inside and they were absolutely full of dead men's bones spiritually. And we know the same thing can happen today. And we also know that the enemy is, is really not our greatest enemy. We are. And our propensity to sin and our willingness to sin, and our excusing of our sin, and making excuses for them so that we can do it. And we know that grieves you, and the enemy may take advantage of that. I pray that we would get that right with you through repentance, and ask you to take that ground back from that enemy. Help us also to remember that when we're dealing with people that don't know you as Savior, that the enemy does not want them to hear the gospel, does not want them to hear about salvation, and we need to be in prayer and patient and simply just uh, very lovingly give them the truth that Jesus loves you and provided a way for you to have eternal life with him. Thank you for teaching us and thank you for showing us these things in the Bible because the battle is real and it is uh, a fierce one to today and many people are falling to the enemy. I ask that you would help us to rescue them from the fire. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.